Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editors Brenda Sandberg and Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is March 3rd, 2023, and I've got a full house of colleagues here to break down all the important FDA and related news we saw this week. First up is RSV vaccines. The FDA held two advisory committees on dueling vaccine candidates this week. Sarah, while it looked on the surface that Pfizer got a win, committee members were not all that enthusiastic, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I don't know that they were um, not totally enthusiastic. I think there's a lot of, um, in theory, excitement for both Pfizer and GSK's RSV vaccines after sort of decades of research um, in this area fall, falling short. These do look promising. Um, I think the the big sort of philosophical debate perhaps is kind of has been sort of why is FDA seemingly pushing these vaccines a little bit faster through the approval process than maybe they need to go was one big theme from the advisory committee. You know, um, it seemed like both days there were comments that kind of of saying, you know, look, this isn't COVID. This isn't the same kind of emergency situation. These aren't supposed to be emergency use authorizations. You know, why are we not waiting for the phase three studies to fully complete? Why are we not waiting for some of this missing data that would be helpful? Um, and I think that was the sentiment. And um, yeah, and like I said, I, I do think people were a bit confused if you just looked at by the top line sort of numbers and outcomes, at least for the Pfizer meeting, where there was a seven to four vote with one abstention on safety, and then a seven to four vote with one abstention on efficacy. And that translated to a lot of media headlines saying, you know, the panel supports approval. And I I would argue, and I, I think I make a strong case and be right, that, you know, that's really not what they said. First of all, when you break down the votes, there was only actually three people that voted both yes on safety and efficacy, right? And normally, you know, you kind of need to support both um, and the balance of both, right? So um, to have a drug be approved, you know, and sometimes even you could see somebody saying the efficacy data is okay, the safety data is okay, but when you weigh, think about them as a risk benefit balance, that still doesn't come up to approval. So I think um, it was interesting that FDA didn't really have them vote more specifically on that approvability question <laughs> and th- to think about whether that was sort of deliberate because FDA didn't want, you know, if they don't, you know, sometimes, you know, we question whether then they do that because if they don't like the outcome, then, you know, this having them not having vote on that, it gives them more flexibility to do what they want. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, I, I think we'll we'll sort of see what happens, obviously, yeah talk more about this, but it seemed like GSK got a bit of a stronger endorsement from the committee. But even then, there was um, commentary and, you know, pushes to FDA saying, you know, we can probably slow this down a little bit. We can kind of wait to make sure we sort of have the, the all the data we need and really know how to u- use these vaccines in the real world before we kind of rush to authorize them. Or sorry, I said the wrong word. Proof. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, did the FDA give any indication of why, you know, what the the need for speed here or I mean, at least the perception of the need for speed or I mean, is it are we just at that point where, 
you know, they're like, okay, it's time to, you know, review the, you know, finish the review or, you know, what, what, you know, did they say why we're at this point? (laughs) The one reason it seemed like FDA pushed here is because, um, there was a particularly bad RSV season and sort of earlier, I guess, the normal RSV season this fall and winter. Um, ironically, though, the vaccine trials were a bit um, hurt, I think, in some ways, because the part of the trials we were looking at at the meeting actually took place sort of the RSV season before when due to sort of COVID dynamics and how people were behaving because of COVID, there was actually very low case, low incidence of RSV. So mm-hmm. they didn't have as many cases in the trial as might have been ideal. Um, so the, the second season of data, which we're still sort of waiting for the companies to kind of f- finish collecting and analyzing, will be in the more recent season where it was high RSV. So that's one of the sort of data points we're still looking for. Um, but yeah, it did seem like Peter Marks, you know, made some very brief comments um, in that regard. Although again, sort of the question becomes, um, you know, most likely I think the timing of when this, these vaccines would be given would still be next, probably early, you know, sometime next fall or maybe like late summer gearing up to fall. So I'm not sure that even if you're very concerned about this season, I don't think there's would be like a quick turnaround vaccine campaign in a couple months um, if FDA approved these, you know, really shortly. Um, But besides that that little hint, I think one of the things that really frustrated committee members um, in this advisory committee, um, and uh, you know, was they were trying to get FDA to like help them like and articulate a bit more like, what are the data standards these, (laughs) these vaccines supposed to meet? You know, as many of them were saying, look, we pretty much only had to review emergency use authorization since we've been on this committee. Like, go back and tell us, like, what do you expect a BLA, you know, application to look like for these sorts of vaccines? And, you know, is this one similar to past BLAs? Does it meet, you know, check all the boxes or are you sort of letting them, you know, get through a little bit ahead of schedule? And FDA didn't really want to answer that question most of the time and they kept deflecting and it was it was a bit like being a journalist when you're having an interview and you um you know somebody doesn't answer your question and you someone else I mean you come back and try and ask it again and they still deflect and they still deflect and I mean you have to hand it to the committee members they you know backed each other up and try <laughs> um but FDA kind of you know it seems like they really didn't want to put any thought into the advisory committee's mind and I, I sort of understand that the sense of like they don't want to bias the committee necessarily in any one direction or maybe influence their vote in a way. But at the other on the other hand, like these committee meetings are so valuable because it's one of the only peaks we get into FDA sort of insight into how they think about, about applications ahead of approval. Um, and so I think losing that sort of viewpoint of FDA and, you know, their thinking and where they felt like that these applications stand is, you know, sort of a negative both for how this committee could process the data and information, but I just also think for like all sponsors, you know, maybe working in this vaccine space to not have this, you know, op- this not as frequent opportunity as you want to sort of understand, you know, FDA's current thinking. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and and Brenda GSK got 
a couple they, their votes were a little more definitive, but there were a lot of the same questions, right? Right. Um, the committee voted 10 to 2 that there was adequate data to support safety, and they were unanimous that there were debt supported efficacy. Um, they they were concerned primarily about, in one case of guillain Barre syndrome that occurred in a immunogenicity and safety study, and there were two cases of acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, which is a inflammation um, of, of the brain and spinal cord. And that occurred in, those two cases occurred in a study of co-administration of the RSV, of uh, GlaxoSmithKline's RSV vaccine and their flu vaccine. Um, but the, the, it, it, the theme here in that, that meeting too was really, uh, there was pretty much a consensus that FDA should wait to license a vaccine until there was data from the ongoing phase three study um, it, it began in in uh, in 2021, and um, and so and and the the application is based on the data from that first season, and they have two or three other seasons that they're collecting data for. And Amanda Cohen, she's from CDC, very um, um, a very key person at CDC, and she said she was very worried about the RSV vaccines being used this year, particularly because of you know, questions about the COVID vaccines, issues going on with them, and also looking at um, potential more their potential for more cases of Guillain-Barré syndrome. The, the committee. Um, um, again, as, as, as in uh, as in the um, Pfizer meeting, you really said, you know, th- this isn't a pandemic um, approval, and we should go back to a pre-pandemic approach to vaccines. And there, there was also what, what stood out is that there was extensive praise for uh, GlaxoSmithKline's data. Committee members again and again said, you know, how detailed, organized, it was very meticulous. Um, and and it, it looked at a lot of um, uh, it, in in addition to the overall vaccine efficacy of 82 percent in those 65 and older. They also broke out efficacy for um, acute respiratory illness, baseline comorbidities, frailty status. Um, there was a question of whether severe disease was actually captured. Um, um, a couple members really um, questioned whether 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 that. Um, group was was well defined. I, I did note, Sarah, in your story, you mentioned Peter Marks. He said that um, you know when he was talking about well why why are we why would we act on this now? And he said FDA can use a variety of tools, um, including different approval strategies, as well as requiring post market studies. And he didn't really go on to what those approval strategies might be. Um, but so you you had a an interesting um, thought on, on on that. Yeah, I just, I mean, I didn't, I didn't cover these meetings, but I had just wondered whether um, accelerated approval might be on the table, since they're looking at, it sounds like looking at RSV data from one season where there were not a lot of cases. I didn't know if maybe they could consider that to be an intermediate clinical endpoint and grant accelerated approval with a condition that the confirmatory evidence would have to come from the subsequent seasons. They have used accelerated approval before for vaccines. Um, It's not used a lot in that space. But um, another option could be that if they have not already 
done a three-month extension of the user fee deadlines, that they could do that if there were a major amendment submission with some new data. But then if you're pushing back the user fee deadlines to May, June, July, August, then I don't know how that would impact sort of the the manufacturing of the vaccine and, and getting vaccine ready for a fall uh, vaccination campaign, as I assume that that's when the RSV vaccines would be administered. Yeah, yes. I mean, there's definitely logistical challenges they're trying, they're, um, that came up to a lot at this meeting. And, you know, the committee was sort of asked how to, was asking how they were supposed to think about that or handle that. Particularly, there was some concern that the safety of these vaccine may potentially be worse when administered with flu. And um, that was one place, you know, they're waiting at least for Pfizer on some more data and, you know, how, how logistically that would impact, you know, the broader vaccination process for older adults. Although it seemed like at my meeting, they kind of, FDA sort of punted that as being sort of a CDC issue. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, if you think about user fee timelines getting pushed back, that would would sort of cre create more challenges for CDC and figuring out how to, like, practically implement, you know, a vaccination program for the fall and uptake, if it, particularly if it involved, you know, needing to get it at different time points than other fall vaccines. And would, these be, would these be annual vaccines, Sarah and Brenda? Well, that's one of the questions that needs to be answered. Um, that's one of the things they're waiting for is durability and to see what happens with the second season. And right, that's the open question of like, is this going to have to be every every year? Or can they get more than one season out of it? Um, and I think um, at, at, at CDC's Amanda Cohn felt like it is a lot easier to get that answer and sort that out in a pre-market space rather than um, sort of having to figure that out after the fact in the way we did with COVID. One question that came out was, Amanda Cohen mentioned this and a couple of other panel members did too, about if they go ahead and, and um, get this on the market before they get the final data from the phase three study, what impact this might have on the adult vaccine program. She seemed very concerned about that. Yeah, am I the only one who's, you know, a little, who's kind of like uh, eyebrows perked up when they started talking about already, maybe I'm just, you know, we're like, okay, we need to go back to the way it was, not necessarily, you know, let's get out of this pandemic posture where we're going to, you know, uh, you know, however, you know, you want to describe how the COVID vaccines were, were done and approved. I mean, it, were you, did, was it, did, was it surprising to you all that they, uh, you know, immediately kind of snapped back and said, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to apply the COVID experience to, uh, you know, to this vaccine? I thought it just made sense. I mean, it, it, it isn't a, you know, they've been, researching on this for decades and it's not it is a very very serious illness and they really want vaccines but there doesn't need to be like uh, authorization emergency use authorization so it it seemed to make sense that they would say well you know this isn't a public health emergency so we don't need to rush something yeah i, I kind of agree with brenda that um I, i'm not particularly surprised again that they're saying you know we have you know, we have our, our traditional standards and 
obviously, I think there are lots of things FDA learned from that pandemic that they'll want to apply to, you know, BLAs and NDAs and so forth. But that doesn't necessarily, again, mean operating where your every data package can have the sorts of exceptions that you give when you're in a pandemic level emergency. Um, and I, I think one other thing that's maybe important to think about too here is EUAs come with a lot of flexibility for FDA in terms of modifying them, pulling them, right? Um, BLAs do not, yeah. <laughs> right? as we sort of know, right? Even with accelerated approval, we know how hard that is. So like if something terrible had happened with the COVID vaccines, you know, on the EUAs, FDA could have very quickly changed things up. They could have pulled the product off the market. You can't just do that with an RSV, you know, a vaccine that gets a BLA. So I think that's also important to think about when you think about, you know, going through a different pathway and what needs to be required. And certainly, I mean, even with COVID, we know they, they required a pretty high standard for vaccines because vaccines are given to healthy people. Even in a pandemic situation, you're seen as having other ways to protect yourself and you have to think about the risk balance. And I mean, one thing that even came up in my meeting that was not that I thought was notable was the chair of the panel was saying how, you know, Pfizer did not really, and I think to some extent GSK suffered from the same problem. They didn't really enrich the population for the older adults that are most likely to have severe outcomes from RSV. So she was saying like, you should have put in a lot of like chronic um, or congestive heart failure patients. Um, I forget the other, um, you know, sort of morbidity patients with, that would have been helpful or, you know, you should have really tried to get more people in the higher age ranges. And even with COVID, she pointed out, you know, like Moderna slowed down enrollment to really make sure they were getting the right people and the right data. So I think it was notable that she pointed out, like, even in the pandemic emergency situation, Moderna was, you know, able in some ways to get, you know, that better thought through trial, um, you know, criteria, enrollment criteria and so forth. And that here, you know, you're sort of operating more of the normal situation. So it's like if they could have met it and if Moderna could have kind of figured out how to do that in that pandemic situation, you know, why are we not holding you to, to those standards in a sort of more normal times? I don't think that was an issue for the GSK vaccine. I mean, they didn't have uh, data and those 80 and older to make a decision to make a uh, vaccine efficacy um, conclusion because there were so few cases in that group. But they did have, um, you know, a lot of other a lot of other groupings like based on comorbid comorbidities and um, frailty, for instance, um, to, to do a, 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 a pretty thorough representation of the population. That's what committee members, um, you know, indicated. Yeah, so yeah, this is a really interesting subject. This is going to be really fascinating going forward as they, you know, to see how the FDA deals with this. Um, you know, they, they've got some time to kind of make up their minds, um, you know, in, in whether it's like Sue said, accelerated approval with a confirmatory study or, you know, they wait, they, you know, they hold and wait for more data to come in. But yeah, this will be this will be interesting to watch, um, you know, and even, you know, coming out of how they handle the post, you know, pandemic kind of posture, uh, you know, if that's uh, if that if that becomes an issue for them or not. Next up, we're going to look at Eli Lilly's surprising move to lower the cost of its insulin products. Lilly said it would bear the cost of a thirty five dollar copay for its insulins in the private insurance market and the uninsured. 
The announcement is an expansion of its existing $35 copay program. It involves allowing 85% of pharmacies to, quote, buy down patient cost sharing at the point of sale. Lilly also will cut the list price of Humalog U100 and Humalin U100 70% in the fourth quarter and, and lower the price of the Humalog authorized generic to $25 a vial on May 1st. In addition, the company will launch an inter- interchangeable biosimilar of Sanofi's Lantus that will be 78% cheaper, cheaper than its reference product. Lilly also made a public plea to other insulin manufacturers to join in, saying it can't do this alone. So the pressure is going to increase on other insulin companies. We already saw, uh, I believe it was some members of Congress calling for you know other companies to lower their lower the prices of insulin. Do you think this is going to push the industry to do the same? I think eventually other manufacturers will uh, um, of, of insulin will come around on uh, um, on this probably sooner rather than uh, than later. Uh, it's also uh, striking to me just sort of how complicated even cutting prices for uh, um, for pharmaceuticals <laughs> is that they literally explain that they can't use the same system in all pharmacies to uh, to ensure that uh, um, you know sort of patients get their uh, um, uh, you know, uh, get their uh, drug at thirty-five dollars, and that the pharmacies are pharmacies are made whole. So it's uh, just a reminder of sort of how uh, many intricacies there are here. And uh, you know, I think it's also a uh, um, you know a function of just sort of kind of the the fact that uh, you know insulin is this sort of kind of unique case. It's sort of kind of uh, you know a um, long-standing product that's sort of kind of is a uh, push child in many respects for sort of kind of how the uh, the need for rebates actually sort of drives higher prices, and uh, um, you know it's a uh, it's an easily understood example of uh, um, uh, uh, what people see as uh, excessive pricing that uh, you know uh, uh, President Biden and uh, um, Bernie Sanders from his new purge at uh, um, uh, Help can sort of kind of uh, uh, easily browbeat with uh, um, you know we saw Moderna um, announce a. Uh, um, uh, 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 pricing pricing uh, accommodations for its COVID vaccine um, uh, as uh, um, uh, Senator Sanders, uh, you know, uh, was calling them to, uh, to testify. And uh, that, that'll, that hearing should be a, uh, um, a fun uh, bit of theater. But uh, Lily Baby sort of wanted to avoid that hot seat as well. And so they sort of kind of got out in front of this uh, um, issue, which has obviously been uh, boiling for a uh, um a long time, but uh, you know, I don't see this being sort of kind of a uh, um, a wide uh, industry-wide trend outside of insulin. Uh, you know, I think uh, um, you know other manufacturers will now be sort of kind of hard pressed to explain why they can't do what uh, Lilly did. Uh, perhaps through some proprietary uh, pharmacy software that Lilly's using to actually get this uh, done, that could be a, uh, a, a stumbling block. But uh, um, you know, I think we'll see sort of kind of. Uh, Insulin pricing are kind of floating down here, and then the uh, the question is, sort of, kind of to uh, to what extent will sort of uh, um, activists and advocates be able to sort of make a uh, similar case about other products? And I think that's kind of kind of limited um, to kind of how widespread this uh, pricing pattern becomes. Well, in the in the products themselves, I mean, there there's different kinds of insulin. It's not just all the same. There's you know basic insulin type of products. So you have to wonder if. You know the the pricing issue becomes different if you're using like long acting insulin. I think there is, or you know, some other different product because I know the patients can't always just a lot of them can't switch just you know from one to the other 
uh, easily or without consulting their doctor or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'm sure this is a lot more complicated than even we're making it sound. <laughs> yeah, no, if if a uh, a patient wanted to take advantage of this, it's not sort of kind of, you know, they won't be able to, you know, the next month to go into the pharmacy and get the uh, $35 if they're not already on one of those Lilly products. You're absolutely right. And I also don't think that Lilly's going to avoid the browbeating hearing, because I think the browbeating hearing is going to be called and they're going to be called in there and say, like, why didn't you do this five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago or, you know, something like something along those lines? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say as much as you've seen, like, insulin, lower insulin prices, insulin for all advocates sort of cheerleading this move and like kind of congratulating themselves for this accomplishment. Right. There are people saying, well, like, Lily basically sort of undermine what they've been saying all along, which is like they couldn't possibly cut the price. So it's 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 a little bit of a challenging um, situation for them. And obviously, I think as Matt already mentioned, San- Senator Sanders has already said it's not enough. And um, you know, the question, of course, is what would be enough for him um, besides you know free insulin for everybody um, who needs it. Obviously, not everybody needs insulin. But I, I think the other thing is like getting back to sort of the complications of, of how Lily had to do this gets at sort of broader s- systemic problems, which is like they felt like they were s- sort of in a like kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because, right, they were saying, well, we can't just lower the list price because then it, cal- you know, how it interplays with formulary access and all of this other s- stuff. And that's where I think Congress you know, maybe if Lily can articulate that well, um, you know, Congress is looking into some of these sorts of challenges with the pharmacy benefits manager management industry and, you know, insurance plans and payers. And, you know, we may see over the next year to them getting more to some of these root cause issues around, you know, drug pricing and coverage and plan design that'll, you know, implicate more than just the drug companies. I don't think they're going to get totally out of it scot-free either, but, you know, to have more introspection into, you know, how some of this works and why Lily, you know, can't just easily kind of give patients discounts and so forth. Yeah, the same day this news came out, uh, um, uh, Sarah wrote a great story about uh, the congressional investigation into PBMs ramp- or, uh, ramping up, so that'll uh, so we're kind of be moving in uh, uh, parallel there. We should uh, also note that uh, this is not sort of simply out of the goodness of Lily's uh, uh, heart, perhaps. Uh, uh, Kathy's story about the um, the press cut noted that sort of it's coming right in in, uh, in advance of a uh, change in the Medicare uh, rules about their inflation discounts, under which uh, um, companies won't just uh, um, you know uh, not get any revenue for uh, uh, products that they sell that sort of have been uh, uh, heavily inflated, but uh, um, could actually sort of end up owing money. So sort of kind of by uh, cutting the price. Uh, um, Lily avoids sort of kind of those uh, um, those penalties it seems uh, so uh, um, there's a there's a lot more going on than just for kind of uh, you know for kind of bad uh, uh, bad PR as we're trying to sort of kind of get to get goodwill uh, um, generated. I think we all wish that it could just be like the you know the 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 tag on the supermarket shelf where you just change the number, but um, you know unfortunately that's the system we that's not the system we live in quite yet quite yet or maybe ever but uh still i guess you know it's good news for for di- for diabetes patients and uh you know we'll see if the other the other companies follow on here and how long it you know if they do how long it takes them to do it 
Finally, it is Rare Disease Week, and advocates descended on Washington to lobby, so we're going to take a look at some rare disease issues. First is potential changes to the Orphan Drug Act. Uh, Attorney Frank Sazanowski proposed amending the Orphan Drug Act to better define regulatory flexibility, which, as listeners here undoubtedly know, flexibility is a largely abstract concept where the FDA is allowed to uh, allowed can allow rare disease sponsors some latitude in how evidentiary standards for approval are met. Sazanowski proposed legislation supporting the use of historical controls as an alternative to randomized control trials or giving FDA authority to allow rare disease sponsors to meet a different evidentiary bar altogether, but still provide the obligatory substantial evidence of efficacy of effectiveness. Another idea that advocates pushed on Capitol Hill would initiate a study on uh, defining so-called ultra rare diseases. That would be the first step toward potentially creating new incentives for drug development in that sector. Emil Kakis, CEO of Ultragenics and a longtime rare disease advocate, is calling for diseases affecting less than 2,000 patients, or 1% of the current rare disease definition of affecting 200,000 patients, as the threshold to be considered ultra-rare. So I'm curious what you all think of this, this idea. There's, there's long been question, you know, kind of this fear in the rare disease community that we don't want to mess with the Orphan Drug Act because things that we don't want to happen could end up happening on, you know, unbe- you know, unexpectedly. I mean, do you think defining ultra rare at this point is, is possible? And, you know, is it advisable? I was going to say, um, when I talked to, <clears throat> excuse me, when I talked to, um, caucus yesterday, I mean, he was person, his personal opinion is very clearly like, do not open the orphan, reopen the orphan drug act, do it as a different act because of those concerns. So I, I, I'm i not sure if that's where the entire rare disease community is or if that's what Congress would do. But right, his, his opinion is we should do this, but we should do it in a way, right, that doesn't sort of jeopardize the any previous gains. But I, the one thing I did find very interesting is when he, he gave his definition of ultra rare and then I sort of was trying to get a sense of like, okay, you know, people talk about, you know, how many rare diseases there are. I think they usually say about 7,000 or so. Um, and then, so I was curious, okay, so if this is a, what is the ultra rare proportion of those? And it seems like that's almost all of them. So I, I guess to me, I wonder how that changes the calculation <laughs> for lawmakers. Like, is that positive or negative that so many um, diseases would fall under this? Um, flexibility and potentially that they want. And I mean, the, the elephant in the room, in my mind, is pricing and cost and rare disease. The, you know, the rare the disease, the most expensive drug. And if you make it a lot easier for them to get to market, how does the system, you know, afford those? And I mean, I think that's, again, the, the side of it. A lot of these companies don't want to tackle and might not want tackled in legislation <laughs> anyway. And I, I think that, you know, to really get something done, they might need to have to think about how to handle that a bit more. Yeah, we always run into the if everything is special, nothing is special argument, you know, with you hear it with all kinds of, you know, expedited approval is a is a good one. You know, they, they keep wanting to make it apply to more more applications. And then you say, like, well, if you apply it to everything, then nothing's expedited. So, yeah, if if this is if that's the case where a lot most of the rare diseases would qualify as ultra rare then why do we need to define ultra rare you just you know 
everyone gets the, you know, everyone's getting the incentive anyway. So, you know, and, and do you lower the threshold some more to kind of carve out, you know, uh, the, the really t- difficult diseases to, to treat or that are economically inviable? I, yeah, that's another discussion. And, and I agree with you, Sarah, that the, the pricing and, you know, that, that, that issue is going to come up and I'm, I'm curious when, or, ha- you know, which parts of the, of the stakeholder community are going to, you know, raise that issue um, if, if this actually gets, you know, moves down the road and gets the momentum because, you know, orphan, I mean, you know, the orphan drugs have been attacked in the past as being, a you know, this, you know, creating these, you know, huge, you know, really, really expensive drugs, even though they're only for, you know, a handful of patients compared to, um, you know, the, the more the more common diseases. Yeah, that's always been uh, the orphan drug uh, advantages, if you will. That's obviously uh, they are incredibly expensive, but because of the uh, the number of patients you're multiplying that uh, 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 high high price by, it doesn't actually sort of end up being uh, too much of an impact in terms of uh, um, overall uh, um, cost. But uh, you know, if there uh, were ways to get more and more products. Uh, out there that would just uh, um you know be great for patients but also uh, uh more of a challenge for uh, um for health systems as uh, as well i am uh, um somewhat amused by this idea that sort of we have to they uh that the fda should sort of kind of uh, better define flexibility i think that actually sort of kind of in, in some ways would uh, um limit what uh, um what they could do uh, um if there were sort of kind of uh, um you know clear uh, markers placed on uh, uh flexibility you know, I, I think there's probably some other way of sort of, kind of uh, um, you know, creating a approval standard for uh, orphan products that sort of kind of, you know, uses a different uh, um, uh, legal term uh, than adequate and well-controlled trials that sort of, kind of may, uh, um, you know, give the flex, give uh, more latitude without sort of, kind of uh, inadvertently limiting uh, um, uh, um, what a reviewer can do. You know, I think for the most part, the challenge for you know, orphan drug developers is the is the rarity that's for kind of you know if you've uh, worked with orphan drugs you obviously sort of know how flexible FDA can be in these situations but if you're you know a uh, reviewer that has not come across an orphan drug or uh, you know works in a division where perhaps there hasn't been one uh, at all then uh, um, you don't know that uh, um, you know FDA really really makes this a priority and that's sort of kind of where you get this idea that uh, you know there should be an orphan drug center or there should be a special committee for orphan drugs and uh, those uh, those kinds of things just were kind of to help you know guide reviewers at least sort of kind of how uh, you know these, these sponsors uh, um, see it to sort of to uh, um, Let's for kind of uh, uh, elements of FDA that's for kind of may not be as familiar with this uh, um, process know that sort of these kinds of things are uh, permissible. And obviously, sort of kind of the sponsors think that uh, more should be permissible than even sort of kind of perhaps, uh, um, you know, uh, FDAers that are very familiar with uh, orphan drugs uh, even think. So there's obviously uh, that tension as well. But a lot of the uh, um, attention raising, I think, sort of is what sort of kind of orphan drug. Uh, um, uh, sponsors are hoping for when they talk about sort of kind of uh, uh, routinizing flexibility and uh, you know perhaps even getting a, a new kind of uh, um, orphan uh, ultra orphan designation out there. Yeah, the 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 whole idea about flexibility is interesting to me too because the way the way it was described, the way Frank described it was like the it yeah. Um, by the way, for those of you who don't listeners who don't know, Frank Sazanowski he's a lawyer. He's done a lot. He does a lot of work with. Um, 
with uh, rare disease companies and drug companies in general, bringing helping bring drugs to, to you know applications to the FDA and getting them through the FDA. He would say that, um, or he says that they when he goes to the FDA, he'll say like you should apply flexibility to this, and the reviewers would say, yeah, you know, you're right, we we absolutely should. But then they would go back to their offices and be like, well, what does that mean? I don't know because I've never done this before, or I've only done this a couple of times. So it you know. It, it it's like it, you know the the staff needs more experience with the to understand the concept but you can't and like like Matt like you said you can't like write it down and try and define it f- formally because then you would limit yourself in terms of being flexible so yeah it's this chicken or the egg problem you have where you're trying to get people to do something but you're, but in telling them to do it, you're limiting their ability to do it. It's 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 really right. odd kind of situation. I also, I guess, I I feel like some of the sponsors' frustration with you know what expertise FDA does or doesn't have at various time points. I guess one thing that just seems impossible is if you're talking about these ultra rare diseases, right? That most, even you know most doctors out in the field seeing patients in a particular specialty won't come across you know, a patient like this in their career, um, I, I don't see a way that FDA, FDA could sustainably hire someone who's an expert in all of these rare diseases. So it's like oh, yeah, kind yeah. of coming up with a creative way to think about, you know, how you give people the time or capability to kind of learn what they need to learn when they c- come up or what can be applied that sort of outside of the scope of really having to know everything about this disease because it, it, I mean it's I just don't think that's a realistic expectation and if they want FDA to gain a certain amount of knowledge that also probably would take time and you know that's the last thing sponsors want when they have a product and the FDA review is for it to take longer so and I guess that was like one of the things in my conversation with Kakis yesterday is like he seemed to be frustrated when review teams come to the company and ask questions and saw that as like a negative as they're not knowledgeable. But at the same time, like, isn't that how you like, if they were trying to learn, th- I, I guess like you also can't like slight them for trying to learn and get knowledgeable. Right. And maybe yeah, you yeah. Have, have, you have to be reasonably accommodating of the fact that, right. You can't expect them to come to the table with the same amount of background as they would for you know a mass sort of market cardiology drug and it it is going to look a little bit different on the review timeline side because of that yeah i mean the the issue was never you know we expect i don't think was ever we expect the fda to hire expertise in seventh whatever you know there's by the way there's discrepancy there's a you know people dispute the number of rare diseases now it's some say seven thousand some say ten thousand yeah, it's all you know. They're trying to standardize that. That's another thing that came up this week too. Um, but um, you, you can never hire enough people that would know everything about all of them. So the issue seems to be that there aren't enough. There isn't enough expertise at the FDA on kind of these like really small clinical trial designs, and you know some of the you know some of the the single arm trials, and and you know some of the some of the more the diff, the alternative design you know designs that these development programs have to use to just to gather data in an eth- and in an ethical way that you know frankly some people have criticized but you know um so yeah it, it 
it's a matter of getting, you know, and I can see like, you know, you, you come through and you, you have this great idea and the FDA looks, you know, is asking you all these questions. Like, how did, how do you do that? I don't, I've never seen this before, you know, that kind of thing that, that could be troublesome, but you know, it's, I think it's that kind of expertise that they're looking for. They're looking for the FDA to have, um, you know, I mean, you know, it, because that just kind of informs, you know, whether you can tell if there's efficacy there, if there's safety there, you know, et cetera. Also on the rare disease front, Sue, we saw an influential leader of the FDA announce his retirement. Um, Billy Dunn, I guess, had presided over a lot of uh, rare disease applications at the FDA. Yes. So Billy Dunn, news came out Monday that Billy Dunn was retiring effective immediately um, <clears throat> following 18-year career at the FDA. He'd been the head of the Office of Neuroscience since its uh, formation in 2019. It was formed as part of the NO, uh, Office of New Drugs Reorganization. And um, he's had a hand in, in a few big <laughs> approvals, to say the least. On uh, the Teplerson approval, he was you know, part of the Division of uh, Neurological Products team that was steadfast in believing that should have gotten a complete response letter and was overruled by uh, Janet Woodcock. But um, I think he will be best known for his uh, stewardship and spearheading of uh, the um, Aduhelm accelerated approval. Um, he pushed very hard for that at the advisory committee. He was accused of giving a very one-sided presentation summary of the data and um, was sort of, I think, stunned when the advisory committee <laughs> did not agree with him. He famously said at the advisory committee that they were not viewing amyloid as a surrogate for efficacy for aducanumab. And yet that's exactly what the FDA did seven months later when it granted accelerated approval on the basis of amyloid plaque reduction. And of course, that approval has led to um, all sorts of controversies, the CMS coverage decision not to cover um, amyloid targeting drugs that receive accelerated approval unless they're in a clinical trial, as well as congressional and HHS inspector general probes um, regarding sort of the closeness of the interactions between FDA and Biogen throughout that review. So um, he's a very controversial figure, um, very revered in some parts of the patient community, certainly. So it will be interesting to see where he ends up. I'm sure we have not heard the end of Billy Dunn. Yeah, I guess I was a little, I was, a, I was a little surprised that the the resignation was immediately. Um, you don't usually see that very often when these announcements come out. Um, no, but, I mean we had we had heard that this had been in the works for some time and that there was a desire to sort of keep it quiet. Mm. So it, it it may not have been as completely out of the blue as it seemed. Let's put it that way. And then they've already appointed an acting uh, director of the division. D is there any is there any kind of expectation that um, you know the direction or maybe some of the philosophy of the division will, will change? Um, you know, while they search for a new permanent director. I mean, I think there was a. I saw some biotech stocks actually dropped somewhat dramatically when the news first came out that, that this was going on. Yeah, I think that was an overreaction. I know there was immediate concern that um, Riata, that had a Frederick's ataxia drug, 
with a PDUFA date the next day, that that was in regulatory danger. I didn't see it that way at all. I expected that to go through, um, and it was, in fact, approved, um, signed by the new acting neuroscience office director, Teresa Barascio, if I'm saying her name correctly. Um, I don't think there's going to be an immediate change in philosophy in the neuroscience office. Um, certainly, Baraccio has presented at the meeting for Amelix's Relivrio. She presented a couple of times on the review team's conclusions that, you know, questioning the robustness of the efficacy data and just raising concerns about the application in general. But if you look back on the summary review for the approval of that drug, she signed off on it. So as did Billy Dunn. <laughs> so um, I would be surprised if there's any major shift in philosophy in the near term. I just think that was a total overreaction by the market. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, we all contain uh, multitudes. And if you uh, wanted to uh, uh, summarize uh, Billy Dunn's FDA career by looking at uh, Agihelm, you might sort of kind of uh, uh, be um, a panicked uh, um, uh, biotech investor, but if you wanted to uh, summarize his uh, career by looking at Elteprosin, uh, you uh, you might uh, not be concerned about his uh, um, moving on from the agency. So uh, um, just depends on uh, um, uh, how you want to uh, uh, look at uh, the, the whole scope of someone's work, and you have to sort of kind of take it take it all into account. Yeah, these uh, you know these personnel matters and and how people read into them is always fun with the, the you know the soap opera vibe that you kind of get from them but uh but yeah this is you know and i you know we have to remind people of this every time there's a big there's a departure that's you know of, of a senior senior leadership that this happens all the time people leave fda it's just like any other workplace and just like people come and get hired at fda every day so you know it's a uh, yeah it's it's significant but uh you know at the end of the day there'll be more there'll be more people leaving, you know, at, you know, in the near future. Uh, and not because of some kind of, you know, issue. It's just because that's the natural order of things. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Brenda Sandberg, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.